Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Herb Asher, distinguished faculty member at The Ohio State University and expert in polling and all things political, not just here in Ohio, but nationally and former Director of Government Relations for The Ohio State University. Herb, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. Good to be with you. Good to see you. Okay, so I don't normally do this, but we're actually gonna date this one because we are talking about all things political. So we are taping this just after the first debate uh, and literally just as the President of the United States, Donald Trump has been diagnosed with COVID along with his wife. So um, that, gives you some context as to where we are right now as we have this conversation. And, and Herb, my first question to you is, what's on the minds of American voters? What are the issues as we head into this election that are the most important to them? Yeah. Uh, today, even more than yesterday, will certainly be COVID. And then number two will certainly be the economy. And number three, probably is some form uh, issues of race, uh, issues of uh, civil society. Uh, certainly the president will be talking more about domestic tranquility and uh, uh, protests and things like that. But that's probably the cluster of issues. Which, what's interesting is that there really aren't many foreign policy issues yeah. that are really getting a lot of visibility. The only sort of foreign policy concern that gets talked about at all is Russian interference or other interference in our elections. But it's really been so far an election without really a foreign policy issue that drives the voters. So let's let's focus then on those domestic issues. You said COVID, the economy and race. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about COVID and and you know the fun part about this today is we get to make a little prediction and then we'll post this and see if you you were right. Yeah. yeah. How do you think the president's diagnosis will impact the way American voters think about COVID and its salience? Well, it'll certainly keep COVID at the forefront. I think salience is exactly the right word. Uh, certainly, the president's campaign would want other issues to be focused upon. Uh, they would be claiming that there's been a dramatic economic recovery. You know, obviously there's dispute about how good that recovery has been, but the more they talk about COVID and the more they focus on, you know, that number that keeps on rising, it's now close to 207,000. Uh, you know, the president doesn't want that to be the number one concern and his getting the virus reinforces that and heaven forbid, if he really got sick, uh, that would certainly uh, keep the focus on that. And, and the reason of course that's important that, that, that the Biden campaign will try to make the argument, and I think it's a fair argument, that much of the disruption that we've had with respect to the economy and schools and Big Ten football and all of that is simply due to that we didn't we didn't handle the COVID uh, uh, outbreak uh, well in the early stages and you know and the argument would be the president was sort of asleep at the switch. The president would say, well, you know, I had a ban on China, da 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 da, but 
you know, basically, as everybody remembers, or a lot of people do, he said, it's a hoax, it'll disappear, there's only 15 cases. So the United States didn't do anything early on to really try to prevent the spread of the virus. And it's that spread of the virus then that resulted in economies and states being shut down. Uh, last uh, spring, having schools change their method of instruction so they didn't have in-person instruction. And, uh, and so, so many of those problems really, I think, can get traced back to just an awful, you know, uh, incompetent response. And, you know, the, I think it's Columbia University sort of makes an estimate if we had responded more quickly, more effectively, you know, we still might have had 50,000 deaths, but we wouldn't have had 200,000 deaths. So certainly the Democrats are going to be trying to not just talk about the virus, but how in fact the initial reaction to the virus uh, really guaranteed the subsequent problems that we've had. Uh, the president will certainly have a very different uh, response and his response is, I've done a great job. I shut down China. The Chinese sent this over. It's their fault. It's not our fault. But when you compare us to nations throughout the world, especially industrialized nations and Western nations, uh, you know, ours is really just a very, very poor track record. So that'll be one of the things that Democrats and Biden will be emphasizing. Uh, and then you get to the economy and, uh, you know, and Trump will point out that until the virus, you know, we had three years of growth and uh, impressive growth, and, uh, and it was. And uh, uh, he fails to mention that actually we had 11 years of growth. Uh, the first eight uh, were in fact uh, uh, during the Obama-Biden administration. And I noticed that the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace, in talking about the economy, did point out that the last three years of the Obama administration, job growth was even better than the first three years of the Trump administration. But I think the president is certainly, you know, right to claim that we had impressive growth. Now he oftentimes equates the strength of the economy to the stock market. And it is the case that the stock market hit record levels during the Trump administration but the economy is so much more than that. And I think we're seeing now how you can have a fairly healthy stock market and still have lots of Americans who are hurting. So you mentioned a third item as the top of the list for voters, which was race. How do you think that's impacting this presidential race and, and sort of help us understand the perspectives of the electorate? Yeah, well, I think the electorate uh, sometimes conflates a lot of things together. So sometimes people hear race, and if you're on the more, I'll, I'll use the word right wing here, yeah, you're saying, yeah, it's, that's all, it's all that violence and all that unrest in cities and things like that. And if you're on the left side of the spectrum, you know, race is more about social justice, equity, things like that. Uh, the, the challenge here is that depending on how these issues are approached, uh, they, they can be, in fact, extremely divisive. And and certainly people have pointed out, and I think I agree with it, that, that the president actually is the great divider, that he's really not the great uniter. And that in fact, whenever you have any kind of uh, domestic unrest or violence, uh, you know, that he thinks that's good news for him because he can play the law and order issue. And, so, and he does. And, uh, 
and you know, he routinely attacks Democratic mayors, Democratic governors, that for you know, for how their cities are just exploding in violence and murder and all of that. And certainly, crime is an issue, uh, but that's not the same thing as the que question of racism or racial justice or equity and things like that. So I think now you're seeing the Biden campaign recognizing that violence is an asset for the president. And so now they're saying they condemn all violence, but they're also saying that we Americans have to work together. Uh, so really trying to make the emphasis on being a uniter rather than a divider. And then right at the heart of this, of course, is uh, 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 police departments. And, uh, and there's really, again, a lot of misstatements or whatever. We know that most police are in fact fine and doing a very good job, doing a very difficult job and all of that. But on the left, you have people using language like defund the police. And on the right, uh, people saying the police can do no wrong. And, uh, and of course, Biden, I mean, and he did this very well on the debate when uh, brought up, when either Trump brought up uh, certain issues about the Green New Deal or defunding or whatever, uh, you know, Biden said, no, I'm opposed to that. And Trump would try to say, well, well, there's left-wing people. And then Biden would simply say, I am the Democratic Party now. And I thought that was a very nice way of not getting into details of the platform or what Bernie has said, or what this, what this activist has said, I am the Democratic Party. And so, uh, so th that cluster of issues will be out there. And, uh, and, and that certainly will influence some, some votes. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how people, how we as observers know what people think. And that's, um, we're gonna talk about polling, an area where you have great expertise written uh, a book and it's like 27th edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, but let, let's go back to how COVID is going to impact the election. So right now we've seen a lot of polls that show that um, uh, those who self-identify as Democratic say that it's a prominent issue, its prevalence is, is endemic, they're worried about it, they're more likely to be taking steps to, to mitigate the spread of the virus personally. Whereas again, according to polls, um, Republicans or those who self-identify as Republicans say that it's less prevalent, it's less of an important issue in their own personal lives, and they're not taking as many steps to, to keep them themselves. Right. At, at and, and, and the independents are somewhere in between, but in fact are more to the side of uh, saying COVID is a serious issue. But your question you know, is so good because, uh, I mean, in so many different ways, COVID will be affecting, for example, how we vote. So literally, Democrats are going to be voting much, much more likely to be voting uh, early absentee mail vote. And Republicans are more likely to be voting on election day. Uh, we, uh, uh, and, and if you look in Ohio right now, the requests for absentee ballots, uh, Democrats far exceed Republicans. And that gap is far greater than existed in previous elections. So and let's, let's, let's hold off on how we vote. I want to talk okay. first off just about how we know what people think. Oh, sure, sure. Into the election. Um, but well, you're, you're getting ahead and I'm excited. So I'll talk <laughs> about that too. But, but on the polling front, how, how confident should we be in polls? 
So we've, I gave you an example of one, and then there are others that are yeah. measuring the horse race. Um, yeah, yeah. Let, let, let me say reasonably confident, but for example, after the debate, I know of at least three polls, one that had Biden winning by eight, another one had Biden winning by I think 12, and another one that had Biden winning by 32. And <laughs> that's quite a spread. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, the story here is they all had Biden winning, but what should we as consumers of polls do? And I think, okay, take the average of the three and don't believe any one of them. Uh, the problem is that oftentimes we don't know enough about the, uh, the quality of the polling operation. There are, a lot of people do polls and, uh, and how they do them. And yeah, so when I hear that there's a CBS New York Times poll, I give it credence. Fox News does very good polls. I think uh, Quinnipiac does, does very good polls. So, but there's so many other people out there doing polls. And so it, it's hard to know just about the quality control, how, what kinds of the quality of the sample they selected. And if they don't tell you the questions that they asked and the order in which they asked them, you know, then you can easily, you know, uh, jimmy up a poll. But I think a good example, yeah, yeah, example back in, you know, people were complaining about the polls in uh, 2016, how wrong they were. And in many ways, the national polls were right on target. And not all of them, but Hillary won the popular vote by about 3%. And a lot of them were saying that. But, uh, but I think a, a good example of polling that was very, very odd occurred in Ohio through, uh, on the Sunday before the election in Ohio two reputable polls came out. Uh, one was Quinnipiac and the other was CBS New York Times. And both of them, one of them had Trump winning Ohio by 1%. Mm -hmm. And the other one had Hillary winning Ohio by 1%. So both of them were saying it basically was a toss up. Trump won Ohio by 8%. Those polls were off. And then you start asking, well, why were they off? Uh, were there you know, Trump voters who weren't willing to admit to pollsters they were Trump voters. There could be some of that, but the, I'm thinking that they maybe didn't fully capture the Republican uh, vote turnout in rural areas. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes rural areas say, well, they're not well populated, that sort of thing. But you start adding up 25, 30 rural counties and they really add up to a major bull. So I'm wondering, did they in fact underestimate the rural vote and therefore uh, underestimate the Trump vote? Because uh, Trump did spectacularly, for example, in Western Ohio, it's Republican territory, but in fact, it was even more Republican than in the past. So that might be part of it. But that is a beautiful example of two reputable polls in a state, you know, that we know is usually, and they know how to poll in Ohio, presumably. So, um, you know, oftentimes, let me just make one last point. You know, if you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, questions in which 70%, 80% of the American people all support something, it doesn't matter whether one poll finds 70%, another poll finds 80%. You know that the you know, vast majority, but elections are one of those tricky things because, you know, people will say, well, my God, this poll predicted that Hillary would win 51-49 and she lost 51-40. Well, that poll was accurate, mm -hmm. even though it got the wrong outcome because we have sampling error and all of that. So, uh, 
Uh, so it becomes important for the media to do a good job of reporting on polls and, and all of that. But uh, uh, so, I, so I go back to your original question. If there are multiple polls and they differ in the results, do a mental average. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't pick the one that you like the best. <laughs> yeah. Let, one last question. You just said something that was interesting there where you said in 2016, these two polls that you mentioned may have underestimated um, the rural vote. Talk a little bit about how that occurs. Didn't they just call people up and ask them how they were going to vote? What do you mean by underestimate? Yeah. Well, uh, and presumably these were phone polls. Or let me just expand this a little. There are some people, some pollsters, that really try to create what I'll call samples of respondents by putting together large numbers of lists of different of different kinds and try to get this as, uh, as, as broad as possible, as large as possible, and then start sampling from these lists. And sometimes they'll do that with the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ever do that with the internet, you are going to uh, probably have a bias against the rural areas because their internet is not as uh, widespread, it's not as strong, not as good, and all of that. Uh, in terms of telephone polls, it really shouldn't make that much of a difference unless you in fact are finding here that, uh, and I don't know this to be the case, that in urban areas, you're more likely to have people with landlines and cell phones and uh, in rural areas, you might just simply have more likely to have people with landlines or whatever. Yep. Uh, and presumably you should be adjusting for the fact that certain people have two chances to get into your poll if they have two different phone numbers or whatever. But I don't know why it should have been that pronounced. And again, I'm speculating here, yep that part of it was underestimating the rural support for Donald Trump. No, but that's helpful to help us understand uh, how the the mechanisms of polling works. Okay, so speaking of mechanisms, you were getting into that fascinating question about how we vote. What are the mechanics of how we vote? So walk us through here in Ohio, what are our choices? How How can we vote? And you were starting to lay out how you think different political the rep- or voters from different political parties are gonna vote. Okay, let me back up just a little because in Ohio, we have had no fault absentee voting for decades. Typically about 25 to 30% of the people vote that way. A smaller percentage vote in person early. And then the largest number of people go to the polls on election day. Mm-hmm. That's changing this year in part because of COVID. In previous years, Republicans were more likely to take advantage of no-fault absentee mail voting. This year, in fact, uh, Democrats are, are doing it. And uh, there have been lots of newspaper stories about how uh, the increase in Democratic requ- requests has been tremendous. There's also been an re- increase in, in Republican requests for absentee ballots, too. But, uh, and, so, uh, and that's probably related to COVID, uh, very likely so. But, uh, so you have here a situation where there'll be a lot of votes, maybe over 50%, that can be reported after the polls close. I mean, the mechanics of this get to be complicated, but if you vote absentee, you've requested your mail-in ballot, you're gonna get an envelope. And inside that envelope will be three more pieces. There'll be another envelope that has, uh, is the return envelope that has all your information that you must complete. Then there's gonna be a blank envelope. 
and then there's going to be the ballot itself. And you put the ballot in the blank envelope, you put the blank envelope in the return envelope, you put enough postage on it, and it better be two stamps. Uh, and then those uh, ballots get arrive at the boards of elections. Uh, well, if you think about it, if there are millions of these, and you literally have to tear open the outer envelope, then you have to look at the envelope that has the signature, all the information to confirm that this is really a legitimate voter who signed his or her name and all of that. That takes some time. Then you open that envelope and you get the blank envelope that is protecting the privacy of the ballot itself. So imagine you know, how long it could take to actually get to the ballot. Well, we can start opening the ballots uh, earlier in the day. And, you, and in fact, even earlier than that, I think. And so presumably when the polls close, you will now have these ballots, you know, out of the envelope and all of that. Uh, and they can be tabulated by machine very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So what that means is probably the first results we're going to get on election night are going to be the, uh, uh, the absentee ballots. And if Democrats are requesting them at a higher rate, probably the early returns from Ohio are gonna show a strong Democratic lead. And then as the, the, the election day returns come in from all the other counties or well, from all the other voters, uh, you're probably going to see that lead shrink and then it'll be a much closer election. And we could be at this for quite a while. And if it really is a close election, remember your absentee ballot only has to be postmarked by election day. So it could arrive the day after, two days after, and I think Ohio allows it to arrive, what, seven or 10 days later. And so in a really close election, and then, you know, there'll still be votes to count, and then you've got the provisional votes. So and I don't know if you wanna say anything about that, but. This is fascinating, because I wanna I want to get into that. I wanna unpack some of this. So first off, I think it's fascinating that you said because of the way that the ballot counting works um, and, and your prediction about the distribution of who will be voting in that way, Democrats more likely to vote by mail, I had been hearing that the, the opposite would be true because it would be later into the day that they would actually tabulate those results. But actually you're saying that, that they can start counting those ballots, those absentee ballots right away well, they don't start count. Technically, they don't count them right away. They prepare them for tabulation. Because think of it: if you have a million ballots, yep, more for probably more than that actually. Yep. And you literally started at seven thirty at night when the polls closed to start tearing open the envelopes yep. and then confirming that this is actually by looking at the outer envelope. Yep. That I mean you know, a million, and it would, it would take you days just to get them ready for tabulation. So, yeah. so, you, so you can start early to prepare them for tabulation, but then you don't really tabulate them and report results till after the polls are closed. So again, a couple, couple more unpacking questions. So first off, as a voter of these three modes, you can vote absentee, you can vote early, and you can vote in person. Do you, as someone who's been a follower and observer and participant in the electoral process as a voter for, for many, many years in Ohio, do you have any concerns about either of those three methods in terms of the sanctity of the vote? 
not really. I, I once had a concern as a political scientist saying, oh my gosh, if you vote early, what happens if something happens in the last two weeks of the campaign and you've already voted and you can't change your mind? And so I was sort of worried about that. And, the, and as the years went by, I said, probably the people who are voting early know who they're going to vote for. Nothing will change their mind. So, uh, uh, so I, and I began to appreciate early voting even more because uh, on election day, and people don't think about this very often, but on election day, if you have a job that required you to punch a time clock, let's say you had, or you had to work between nine and five, uh, uh, that meant you had to go to the polls before, you know, early in the morning or after work. And the lines were tremendously long. And it is the case that as long as you're in line before 7.30, the polls will stay open until everybody votes. But why should people have to wait that long to cast a vote? And, uh, and in some polling places, you know, the lines uh, went to the outside. And, and there was no protection against the elements. And November 3rd could be a nice day. It could be an awful day in terms of weather. So I became more sympathetic to early voting, even though I realized uh, that uh, some people uh, may vote prematurely from their perspective. But most of the people who vote early have a, and this year especially, I think, uh, have a really good idea. Now, I think the president has done a disservice to Ohio and to the country in terms of talking about and this uh, fraudulent mail votes and all of that. Uh, many states have had uh, uh, mail voting for a long time. It's worked well. Some states have, have only mail voting, but here in Ohio, we've had the choices that you've mentioned and it's worked well under Republican secretaries of state, Democratic secretaries of state, Republican governors, Democratic governors. And it really does uh, make it easier for the voter. Now look, the third choice we have, you know, besides voting in person on election day and doing this mail voting, uh, is we also can do early in-person voting. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you don't have to vote on election day. You can vote the week before in person if you want to. Here in Franklin County, you go up to the Board of Elections, uh, the, the Franklin County Board of Elections. And so you can sort of wait to hear the second debate or the third debate and then go vote if you want. But, uh, uh, but I think uh, uh, right, uh, absentee voting by mail has been actually a, a service for the citizens. It's also been actually a service for the political parties. And uh, let me elaborate because uh, you can find out, okay, who among registered Democrats have voted already, mm -hmm. you know, by, who have requested an absentee ballot and it's been returned. So you can do that, you can find that out. Same thing, the Republicans can find that out. So that means on election day, you can try to identify those Republicans and those Democrats who haven't yet voted. And so you can make your election day targeting uh, much more efficient. And so I think parties in some ways have liked that. Great, thanks for that education on the, the voting process, but that's only right up until that that vote is cast. What talk us a little bit? You mentioned provisional voting. Yeah. How, how does that work here in Ohio, and and under yeah. what circumstances do you think that will influence the vote count here in Ohio or nationally? 
Yeah, and here provisional voting gets a little complicated because there are different reasons for why people might vote provisionally. Uh, let's assume that uh, you and I have requested an absentee ballot, uh, but we decide we're not going to mail it in. So we show up at the polls on election day to vote in person. And fortunately, uh, the records that the poll workers have show that you and I have requested an absentee ballot. And they're not gonna simply accept our word that, you know, that we didn't mail it in. They'll assume, well, are they trying to vote twice or whatever? And so what they do is they give, you, give us a provisional vote and we fill out the ballot, fill out the provisional vote they accept it, and then they simply hold, you know, the election officials hold on to it until the deadline for receipt of uh, um, absentee votes is passed. And if we never have mailed in our absentee ballot, then in fact, our provisional vote is our vote. It's legitimate, okay? So that's one, and that's pretty straightforward because there's nothing that you and I have to do that once we cast the provisional vote, it's all on the shoulders of the election officials to make, you know, to, to make sure it gets processed appropriately. But then if you've in fact, let's say, go to the polls and uh, your address doesn't match, you know, your registered uh, address because you moved around or whatever, or what, you know, they may decide you need to vote provisionally. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then if you have to vote provisionally in, in, in cases like that, and there are a lot of different cases, you then have to take the initiative after the election, I think within seven days, to provide whatever evidence you they want. It could be a, a utility bill or some sort of official government you know, statement or whatever that says, yes, you actually live at this address. And that means then you have to go to the Board of Elections, give them that, and then they have to process that. And so if you had a very close election, and you had lots of provisional votes, and you had lots of late arriving absentee votes, and you had the overseas military vote, it could take a long time. If the election's a landslide, you know, you can probably, even though they might not call it per se, but if you know, if you know there's 70,000 outstanding ballots and one candidate has a 300,000 vote lead, you know, the election's effectively over, even though we don't have the official totals. So when do we officially call the election? We're so accustomed in the United States with our extensive media coverage to news organizations calling it like an hour after the polls have closed in some cases. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and, and sometimes the media make it even quicker because they will do exit polls. Right. And uh, an exit polling has gotten more difficult and you now have to, uh, you know, if, if people were voting in person, you literally have exit pollsters outside the polling places giving people, you know, under, with instructions and all that, you know, they, they wouldn't just, they'd hand out to every 10th person at this precinct or that precinct, but they'd hand out these ballots, they collect them and they'd be ready to make projections. Uh, and in some cases, the media outlets were really irresponsible because they would say, well, we really can't say anything until the polls close but if our exit poll results continue in this direction, it could be a good night for the Republican. I'm thinking you, you, you shouldn't be doing that. But, uh, but now it's actually uh, uh, more complicated. And one of the issues will be by what date do we have to in fact certify the election? 
But that should be, I don't remember the date here in Ohio, but that should be su sufficient time to in fact take care of all of these late arriving ballots. But there's also you know, legal challenges. And here, here's the worrisome thing here. Uh, how litigious will the political parties, but especially the GOP, because the president has been you know, just screaming about fraud, which most people deny is a serious issue. How, how, how much time or how much effort, how many lawyers, how many cases will they try to bring uh, to delay the outcome, delay the results? And uh, clearly, if the president were winning, they wouldn't see any fraud. So, you know, uh, but you're going to have poll watchers, you're going to have lawyers at the polling sites. And, you know, ideally, you know, you, one would hope, let's say, that most states, whether it's Republican or Democrat, have a sufficiently large difference between the two candidates that people, lawyers will be less likely to, in fact, uh, you know, try to, you know, creating all this unrest and upheaval. But I, I mean, I worry about that, but most of those things aren't signs of fraud. They're, some, they're really signs of political manipulation. So people trying to undermine the election results. So talk about that a little bit. You, you have a hopeful view that we won't go down this path, but odds are good that at some some point in the election. So in, in well, the- Imagine, let me just you say, let me just say, imagine instead of one Florida, like we had in right, exactly. 2000, we had 10 Floridas. Well, but does, here's the question. You, you raised Florida, Bush v. Gore. That case was determined in the Supreme Court. And we've heard President Trump talk about the importance of having nine justices on the Supreme Court. Do instances where there uh, is litigation around elections, do those all go straight to the Supreme Court? How, no. how, how does this process work? Educate no. us a little bit on- no, no, typically actually it will go through courts plural. So that actually extends the process. And, uh, and even before it got to courts, you might be going through recounts and things like that. So you could really drag out the process. Uh, but, and so I think, I think uh, <laughs> 2000 Bush versus Gore was the perfect storm. And uh, in a state in which, uh, you know, the margin was 527, 527 votes. But in fact, in a state on top of everything had the worst electoral system you could imagine in terms of voting methods that differed by county and that had all sorts of flaws. And I, some people may remember the butterfly ballots, uh, uh, that happened because of a Democratic election chief officer in, in was it Palm Beach County or, yeah. and uh, who thought there was too many candidates on the ballot, too many candidates for president, put them all in one column, which you're supposed to do. It would be difficult to read for her elderly residents. The print would have to be too small. So she put them on two different pages, opposite page which created the butterfly, if you will. Yep. And a lot of people, you know, mistook, okay, a, a vote for George Bush was always in the number one slot. And I'll explain why. Al Gore was number three. And in between were, uh, you know, some other candidate. And people got confused. And there's definitive evidence that Gore lost 2,200 votes just by the mistakes that people made. And he lost by 527. Well, beyond that, Florida had another county in which it said, cast one vote on, or cast a vote on every page. 
Well, it turns out they had their presidential candidates that spread over two pages. So if you followed the instructions, uh, you cast two votes for president, you disqualified your vote. So it was, and then you had the, of course, the hanging chads and all that. Ohio had in its law, what kind, on punch card voting, uh, what kind of manipulation of the chad? And for the, our listeners, the, uh, you know, the chad is that little piece of paper that's supposed to fall out. Well, sometimes it doesn't fall out. And sometimes it's still hanging on by one little corner or it has, it's pregnant. It's got, it's been punched, but the, and we had all those definitions about when a Chad that's been punched in some way should count Florida dent. And so they're making this up as they go along. And, and so you're seeing these horror stories of going on and, went, and, and so, and then from there, you know, that's sort of in the recount stage, you start then going to the courts and, uh, Oh, it, 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 I, I hope that doesn't repeat itself. So I'm going to pull this to a close, not because we don't have more to talk about, but because uh, we have to bring good conversations to an end. And I'm going to put no. you on the spot. Yes. Ask for a prediction. All right. So get ready. This is dangerous to ask a political scientist for a prediction. Um, here it comes. What's <laughs> the weather going to be like on November 3rd here in Ohio? Can I give you a, an elaborate answer? That, it'll be okay. But literally, this is what's funny here. Uh, you know, as the president has scared people about uh, voting early by absentee, imagine if he scared Republicans from doing that, you know, and so they're going to vote on election day. Yeah. And then on election day, uh, you know, the, the Democratic prayer would be miserable weather coming from the Southwest, <laughs> uh, you know, through Western Ohio, depressing the Republican vote because it's been too difficult to get to the polls in rural areas. And Republican prayers would be, oh, let's have lake effect snow coming down from Cleveland. But if the Democrats have voted early, that's less, you know. So I, th I think it'll be okay, but the <laughs> One, one other part here is just simply, why the hell do we vote on November 3rd? Because that is actually the time by which most of the crops have been harvested. It's an agrarian thing. We could certainly vote. We probably should be voting earlier, and, uh, and, uh, but we don't even talk about that. And so luckily we're not in North Dakota or Montana and have to worry about <laughs> that question of what the weather's going to be like on, up there. <laughs> Well, Herb, thank you so much for educating us on these complicated things. And again, we'll see if your predictions and analysis come true. Uh, this will get dropped about a, a week after you and yeah. I actually had this conversation. Yeah. And there's so much dynamism and fluidity in the electoral process. And, yeah. And as we were talking even before, you know, Ohio is now back in play as a battleground state. And uh and I think the Biden campaign is prepared to put another $5 million into Ohio. And uh, so, you know, the winners there, of course, are our local TV stations who will get all these commercials. But well, the, the old adage stays true that Ohio produces and picks presidents. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Herb, for, for spending this time with us. And we'll, we'll check in with you again later as the, yeah. as the I'll go into hiding just in case. Thank you. <laughs> Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 